You can go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. So many times this time of the year we have a series on Christmas and different messages and, and uh, you can't help but to uh, read the Christmas story over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, after a while you're kind of looking for a little different angle on the narration of the birth of Christ. And if you look through the Gospels, it's kind of interesting that in the Gospels, the, the Christmas story really starts out with the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias the priest, Elizabeth his wife, who were very old. They weren't able to have children, and yet God miraculously allowed them to bear a son who was named John, who came the forerunner to the Messiah. And then you see the same angel Gabriel who appeared to Zacharias appeared to a virgin who was named Mary a girl of roughly about 13 years of age and uh, tell her that she was going to have a baby without a man's help that the Holy Spirit was going to place a child in her womb and that the child would be none other than the son of God as well as the son of David the one who would establish an eternal kingdom and salvation for all. He would be the Savior. His name was to be Jesus um, because he would save the world from their sins. And so if you follow that narration, you follow the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph right up to the birth of Christ, and you talk about the shepherds, and you look at their different place in society and maybe why God has chose them, and you talk about the angels and their, the heavenly appearance of angels at the birth of Christ. And you see all this stuff going on in the Gospels. Uh, and it's really from a human perspective, you might say. Uh, you see all the different insights of these individuals as you read through the Gospels. But I think there's a different perspective that we find in the book of Hebrews on the birth of Christ. Uh, When you look throughout the Gospels, there's usually just a couple words that describe the literal birth of Christ. Usually it goes something like this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. That's all that describes the literal birth of the Son of God, the Son of David, the son of Mary, the son of Abraham, Savior, Messiah, the Lord Jesus. This is the birth of all births, and that's all the Gospels gives to it, was one sentence, a couple words. But it's interesting, as you follow the birth of Christ through the New Testament, we see in the epistles that the writers don't necessarily look so much at it from a human perspective the birth of Christ. But they really look at it from the perspective of deity, the perspective of God. Uh, When the Gospels accounts of the birth of Christ, just because it's over there, it doesn't mean that it's over in the rest of Scripture. As you go through the New Testament, you see it brought up over and over and over again. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the, the epistles, I should say, other than the Gospels, they don't talk about the shepherds. They don't talk about the wise men. 
They don't even talk about Gabriel or Joseph or even Mary isn't really mentioned. They don't talk about Zacharias or Elizabeth or John, and they even don't even mention Bethlehem or a stable. They don't talk about a manger or a feeding trough as it was. They don't talk about animals. They don't talk about a star. They don't even talk about Herod. They don't talk about all the innocents that were slaughtered at Herod's hand after the birth of Christ. They don't talk about any of that. What they talk about, when you come back to the epistles and you look at the birth of Christ, all they ever talk about is Jesus Christ. They focus on Christ, the Lord. And I think so many times at this time of year we get so caught up about Jesus being a little baby in a manger. And even though throughout the Gospels it says that that little baby is the son of the Most High and he'd be the Savior of the world and all that, um, there's nothing to identify that child as special from any other child. Not one thing. In other words, if you were there at that birth, you would look at that situation and go, it looks like a baby. looks like a newborn baby. There wasn't a halo over his head, as the Catholics would have us to believe in some of their artwork and things like that. There wasn't a glow on his face. He was a newborn baby. He was a human. A baby. Deity. Becoming man. And yet, still remaining God. It wasn't possible to find any feature in that child that you would look and say, wow, this is the Savior. This is Jesus. The only fact that indicated that he would be the Messiah was that he was born in a a manger. But to look at the baby himself, he would look like any of the, the babies we see here around our congregation. There was no way to point to him physically and say, oh, look at, look at this identifying mark on him. He is the Son of God. And so the narratives in the Gospels give us kind of a human perspective, but I think Hebrews gives us kind of a perspective from God's point of view. We know what the shepherds thought. We know what Mary thought and, and Joseph and the wise men and, and Zachariah. All that, we, we've studied all that over the years. But what, what does God think about his son being born? Let's get God's perspective on the birth of Christ. And that's what I want to do these next couple weeks as we lead up to Christmas. You can look in Romans 1 and you can find references to the fact that the child was both the son of David and the son of God. We could look at Galatians chapter 4, where it tells us that in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, made of a woman. Or in Ephesians 3, where it introduces the idea that there's this mystery of Christ. The unknown secret of God coming in human flesh. Or even in Philippians chapter 2, where you see the whole the passage that talks about Christ emptying himself. Who, though being in the form of God, thought it not something to hold on to, but really to give it up. And he took upon himself, it says, the form of a man, the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. 
even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can see where it talks about the mystery of godliness. God in human flesh. God manifested in the flesh, as Paul put it. Colossians 2, where it talks about Christ, Jesus Christ being all the fullness of the Godhead, was dwelling bodily in a human fleshly body. I mean, those are amazing thoughts. To think that, that God, the holy God of the universe, the creator of everything, would come down to earth and take on the form of a man. I mean, think about that. That's just, you just can't even comprehend it. But I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 1 because I think it follows that same line of thought. Now, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. They've been talking about that probably ever since the book was written. But it is scripture, but there's nothing in the epistle that identifies the writer. Some think it's Paul, others think it's other people. It's, it's kind of a mute discussion because the Word of God doesn't tell us. Um, you can draw certain conclusions. But the writer of Hebrews wasn't much for long introductions. When you look at Paul's epistles, usually he'll start off with, you know, greetings and he'll, he'll sh- share a little bit about who he was, Paul the Apostle. This writer does none of that. He, he cuts right to the chase. Gets right to the bottom line. And I, I just want to read for you the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And you can follow along in your Bibles. It says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here again, there's just a very direct statement about the Son of God. A very direct statement that shows us, that tells us who he is is now there's a debate going on and it'll go on it'll continue to go on about how sometimes people uh, say well you can be saved in various ways or or whatever Uh, i I just want to share with you this morning the heart and soul of the christian faith if you're a christian here today you understand this if you're not you need to understand this the heart and soul of the christian faith you will not go to heaven unless you understand this truth. The heart and soul of the Christian faith is that we need to confess Jesus is Lord. You have to have an affirming statement that Jesus is Lord, both the deity of Jesus and the sovereignty of Jesus in your own life. If you want to be saved, you have to believe in your heart, the Bible says, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord. That's a decisive mark of a Christian. And it's always 
the, the public confession that Jesus is Lord, that's, a, that's kind of an announcement of a believer and their faith in Christ. You can talk with those of the Mormon faith, and they'll call you Christian, and they'll assume that maybe they are Christians. But I don't know about you, but my Lord and Savior was not created as they believe. God cannot be created. And so they have a different Jesus than we do. And so we have to be careful today because everybody's coming up with all sorts of belief systems. But we have to go back to Scripture, and apart from the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, there is no hope of eternal life. There is no hope of heaven. Nowhere is there a glorious reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ found more than in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 1. And so we want to look at that a little bit this morning. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, it says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we have to understand a little bit about the the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews, is with a letter written. We don't know who it was written to as far as a church goes. It doesn't really say. Um, and we don't want to spend a lot of time on the, the background of Hebrews here. But I think you have to understand the basics. Um, this was a letter that was written after Christ's ascension, which occurred probably around 30 A.D., give or take, whatever, a couple years. And as you know, uh, in, in sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem, this took place, maybe in the 60s A.D., around that time. Um, the one thing you have to understand is, when this letter was written, some of the Jews had come to faith in Christ. They, they came to faith. They came to understand that Jesus was their Messiah. And so they were uh, people like Zacharias and Elizabeth and, and, and Mary and Joseph and others, they had come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And they had embraced him as such. They had been, quote, saved from their sin by acknowledging Christ as Lord and following him. And they constituted the early church. That's what made up the early church. Now, we don't know where this took place. We don't know anything about this church that he's writing to here. It doesn't tell us. He doesn't identify the people or any location. But we know that it was a group of Jews, mostly true believers in Jesus. And so you have to kind of get that in your mind if you're going to read the book of Hebrews, because if you read this without a proper understanding, you're going to be all confused when you start reading certain verses. But when people of the Jewish faith came to Christ and followed him and, and, and became, quote, Christians, Christ followers, you have to understand in that culture, that was a pretty big deal. There was a lot of hostility from the surrounding community. Usually they were alienated. They were what they called unsynagogued. They were literally kicked out of their synagogue. And back then, the synagogue was the social network of the whole community, kind of like churches used to be in America, you know, years ago, years ago. Uh, early in our country, whenever anything happened in a community, where did it happen at? It happened at the local church. That was the gathering place. That was where the town hall was. That's where they had a meeting. They had it in the church. And it's unfortunate today that the, the local church is, you know, it's not anymore the hub of our society or our community, and we're lucky to even call it one of the spokes on the wheel 
you know, because it's kind of almost an afterthought. But back in, in this time, when this letter, this epistle was written, you have to understand that it was the, the synagogues were the center of their culture. And so to be kicked out of something like that was a devastating blow to somebody. They were literally social outcasts because of their faith in Jesus as Messiah. And so Hebrews was written to them. It was really written to affirm that they had made the right decision. You know, sometimes when people come to Christ and, and all of a sudden they're faced with trials and tribulations, which the Lord says are going to happen, but sometimes when you're immature in your faith and these things start to happen, you begin to second-guess your faith. You begin to think, wait a minute, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. I mean, yeah, I want heaven and I want my sins forgiven and I want all that stuff, but whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. And see, that's what was happening to these individuals that the book of the letter of Hebrews was written to. They had been alienated. They had been kicked out of their society for the most part. And um, it was a letter written to affirm that their faith was the right decision. And you have to understand, also associated with that community, there were some Jews who intellectually looked at Jesus as the Messiah and said, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I mean, with the prophecies and everything, it kind of makes sense that this guy would be... um, the Messiah, and I understand why these people are following him, but, you know, I'm not there yet because I don't want to get kicked out of my synagogue. So intellectually, they understood who Jesus was, but they were not willing to make a public confession of him as Jesus as Lord because of the simple fact that they didn't want to be alienated from their family and their friends. Their fear of, of being a social outcast and their fear of being put out of their families, the fear of losing their jobs, their income, paying for that social alienation, that price, it really held them back. It restrained them from confessing publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what? I, I would be honest to say that sometimes there's cases today where when you're sharing Christ with somebody and boy, they're, they're nodding their head and they're, yeah, 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 I understand. Yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and Jesus is the one. And Well, you know, you want to make that commitment? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and they back away from it. That's not anything new. That happens today. But this epistle was written to encourage them that they made the right commitment. And it was also written to those who were kind of on the fringe, who hadn't made the commitment, who hadn't believed in Jesus as Lord yet, and it was kind of an instruction uh, book to them. And so it, it, it addresses them. The purpose, really, of this epistle is to show the Jews that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So this morning, a little later, we'll be uh, having communion time. And it addresses part of that whole sacrificial system in Hebrews. When you read through the, the letter of Hebrews, it starts talking about, you know, the, the, the blood of, of goats and can't take away sin, and, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. It talks about all this stuff. And the reason is, is because it's basically pointing these Jewish believers that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and that he is superior to all the pictures and the types and the representations and the shadows that came before him. In the Old Testament, that's what would happen is, is everything is kind of a picture or a shadow of the coming Messiah. And so the Holy Spirit inspired the, the, this epistle to be written to encourage the Jews 
and uh, to, to really help them in their confession as Jesus as Lord. Uh, and he wanted to let them to know that they weren't losing anything by embracing Christ. So many times, so many people, when you share Christ with them, and they, they hesitate to make that commitment because they don't want to lose something. They don't want to lose their freedom. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to lose the sin that's in their life. They, they, they want to continue in it. And so he wanted to encourage them. And he really points out a good argument. And he says, you know what? You're going to give up an earthly temple, but you know what? It's going to be destroyed anyway. (laughs) Um, You're going to give up earthly sacrifices, but that's going to stop pretty soon. You're going to give up the priesthood. You're not going to need that anymore because Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. So you're not going to need priests anymore. But that's going to end pretty soon anyway. And what would they get in exchange was a house not made, it says, with eternal hands. Not made with earthly hands, but eternal hands in the heavens. A heavenly temple. They would get in exchange would be a great high priest, that being Christ. A once for all sacrifice, that being Jesus Christ on the, on the cross, who fully atoned for their sin and gave them access to the Holy of Holies. The very presence of God forever and ever. That was foreign to their mind. And so he wanted them to understand that. And so this writer wrote to these Jewish believers and these Jewish kind of skeptics in a way that he wanted to affirm that, affirm that Jesus is Lord. And this little baby that is born in Bethlehem is in fact the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. The new covenant in Jesus is far superior to the old covenant. In Jesus there's better hope. There's, the, the writer of Hebrews shows that. There's better hope. There's a better covenant. It's a better priesthood, better promises, better sacrifice, better substance, better resurrection. You have in Christ a heavenly Messiah, not just an earthly man. That's what he's wanting to point out to them. And so this whole approach to Hebrews is to show, really, the superiority of Christ to everything else in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He wants to lift Christ up higher than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron. He's the great high priest. That the covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant. And it goes on and on and on as you read through the book of Hebrews. You see this. He constantly exalts Christ. It's a Christ-exalting book. Christ-exalting letter. And in the first three verses, he gets right to it. He basically summarizes and says that Jesus is better than anything and everything. (laughs) Right in the opening statement. We're going to be looking at, first of all, the preparation of Christ. The preparation of Christ. The preparation for Christ. Um, You know, when we come to the manger scene and we see the little baby, and you've all been probably at living nativities where they actually have a little baby there, and boy, you know, the sentimentality just kind of sets in. We just think, oh, that's just so nice. It's so warm. And we forget that this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh. This isn't just a little baby. So we want to look at the preparation of Christ, the presentation of Christ, and then next week we'll look at the preeminence of Christ. But look at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1. 
just so we can see what, what we're talking about here. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Do you know that Jesus Christ is God's final word to us? God's final word to us is his son. When you look back through the Old Testament, we see God speaking over and over and over and over again. God speaking to the fathers, the ancestors of the Jews. He's speaking to the fathers through the means of the prophets. And this, was, this happened years, hundreds of years before this, this book was written. And you remember, in between the Testaments, there was probably a 400-year period of time where no prophets spoke at all. So the complete silence. And so in the Old Testament, we see God speaking. Speaking to the the Jewish people. Speaking to the fathers and the, the prophets and the ancestors. And it says he spoke through prophets and he did it in a lot of different ways. Do you know that if God didn't speak... In the Old Testament, we wouldn't have a clue today about anything. Nothing. It's by God's grace that he spoke to us through the Old Testament. That he spoke to these individuals and it was recorded for us. So we can get the whole picture. You know, we, we support several families with the new tribes. And the one thing that they've learned is when they go into a, a jungle setting and they have to teach this tribe the gospel, they can't start in the New Testament. They can't start, well, Jesus was... They can't do that. It doesn't make any sense to them. They have to spend years laying a groundwork before they even get to the gospel. And they go through the Old Testament and they show basically the giving of the law and original sin and the giving of the law, the whole thing. And, and uh, Jerry Kennel was, was telling me that, he goes, we have some in the, the tribe on occasion, you know, they're like, well, just, you know, what is this gift that you're telling us about? We can't tell you yet, because it's not going to make any sense to you. You have to be patient. You have to understand the whole thing. Because they tried it the other way. They went in and they just taught them about Jesus, and they, and they didn't have a clue. Didn't make any sense. And see, sometimes that's the same thing when we, we share our faith. Sometimes we want to just kind of throw Jesus onto people or cram him down the throat or whatever and it just kind of, you know, overload them with Jesus. And they don't have any clue that they need a Jesus. They don't need a Savior. They don't have any idea. And sometimes we have to take the time to lay the groundwork, beloved, that shows them that they're in need of a Savior. I mean, you know, if, if, if I have $1,000 and... You have no need of $1,000. What's it going to mean to you if I come to you and say, hey, I, I have something I want to give you. I want to give you $1,000. You're going to say, I don't need it. Don't need it. Go give it to somebody else. It's not going to mean anything to you. And that's what we do so many times with the gospel. We go to people who think they got everything together. And we try to share, you know, well, you need to be saved. And they're going, saved from what? I'm doing pretty good. I got a good job. I, I provide for my family. I'm, I'm responsible. We have a house. We have clothes on our back. We have a car. What do you mean I need a savior? I'm doing pretty good by myself. Thank you very much. And so you have to bypass that and you have to show them, well, wait a minute. You know, 
do you believe that you're perfect? And you have to go down that road of showing them, basically, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Once they get that, then they can say, oh, okay. It's not until you're drowning that you need a life preserver. And so, so many times... When we see here the preparation for Christ in the Old Testament, God laid down a a foundation for the Savior. He was laying down over and over and over again as he spoke through different people. But if God hadn't spoken to us, we wouldn't, in the New Testament, we wouldn't get anything. Because the Bible says the natural man understands not, what? The things of God. Because they're spiritually discerned and they're, they're, we're spiritually dead. And so we need to understand that. We have to understand that, that God desires us to have a relationship with him. And the only way we can do that is, is through Christ. Well, when did God speak? When did he speak? It says there, in times past or a long time ago. Remember, there's like I said, there's been 400 years of of since the Old Testament, and it's mostly been quiet. And so all of a sudden, you have John the Baptist, who's a prophet, and he gets out there and starts repent for the kingdom of heaven is her, and then Jesus comes and repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand, and then he starts all this miraculous, and, and then his birth, angel starts showing up. This hadn't happened before for 400 years. In the Old Testament, you had a lot of supernatural things going on. But then there was just kind of this law. This dead time in between the Testaments. And so that's why it says here that God spoke. He spoke to the fathers. Well, how did he do that? He did it through the prophets. What are prophets? Prophets are simply people who speak for God. That's what a prophet is. A prophet necessarily doesn't have to know, okay, next week at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, I know where you're going to be because I can tell the future I'm a prophet. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about basically foretelling the word of God. And in the Old Testament, because it wasn't necessarily recorded yet, God used man and he worked through man in a supernatural way and these prophets would literally speak the word of God to the people. So he spoke through the prophets. And how did he do this? It says there, at various times and in various ways. Kind of a hodgepodge. Just a a whole myriad of different ways God spoke. You can go through all the Old Testament books, all 39 of them, and see how Jesus speaks in each book. We could do that if we had time. But it says there that he's spoken different times, various times, and in various ways. God spoke in Genesis. He spoke in 2 Kings. He spoke in Ezra. He spoke in Nehemiah. He spoke in Job, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. And he spoke in many methods. He spoke, sometimes he'd use a vision. Sometimes he might use a dream. Sometimes it was a direct voice from heaven that could be heard with the human ear. Sometimes it was indirect through the Spirit of God in the mind of the the writer. Sometimes it was through a type or a parable or a symbol or a ceremony or a stone, something that was written on a stone. 
But God spoke, and he spoke long ago. That's his point. And it's referring to the Old Testament. See, it's been a long time since God said anything. But he did speak a long time ago to the Jews. And it was through the prophets. Those were the individuals who were called to be the spokesmen of and for God. And you can look at the different books and you can see how God spoke. Sometimes it was through poetry or narrative or the law or prophecy Revelation, whatever. I mean, there was different ways that he spoke. In the Old Testament, Revelation was, you have to understand this too, was what they call progressive. It was progressive. In other words, it didn't go from error to truth because there's nothing in the Word of God that contains error. It's all inspired by God. It's all truly what God said, and that's the way he wanted it to be said. But the Old Testament moved progressively. So more and more things were unveiled to the folks. They may not have got it at first, but then the pieces of the puzzle began to fit. It was moving toward completeness. Degree after degree after degree, a progressive revelation. And that's how you have to teach people things. You know, you don't take your little baby and say, okay, here's the Encyclopedia Britannica, have fun. What are they going to do? At best, they're maybe going to chew on it and get it soggy, okay? Drool on it or whatever. They're not going to pick it up and, oh, thanks, Dad, I'm going to read this, you know. No, they're not going to do that. Why? Because they don't even know the letters yet. They don't even know how to speak. You have to take time and you have to lay down the fundamentals. You start with the ABCs and the simple things, the simple letters, and you teach them how to spell and, and, and pronounce things and read. And that's what God did. God started out with the very basic essentials that he wanted us to understand. And God started out, as Paul calls the Old Testament, in the early parts of the Old Testament, the elementary principles. Spelling book of types and ceremonies and prophecies. That's, that's basically what he's doing. He was leading up to something. Well, he was leading up to the Messiah. But if he just dumped the Messiah there, they, they wouldn't get it. And so God had to use the prophets to write down his words, and the New Testament writers recognized that. When Paul said this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. When Peter says, no Scripture comes by private interpretation, but holy men were moved by the Spirit of God, he's talking about the Old Testament. He couldn't be talking about the New Testament because it wasn't finished yet. So when Paul refers to Scripture, when Jesus refers to Scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament really affirms the divine character of the Old Testament. That's that's what it does. And so the preparation for Christ was needed because he is really the, that's why he's the theme in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again. If you search through the Scriptures, you'll see That Jesus said this. He said, if you search the scriptures, you'll see that they speak of me. Some people got it and some people don't. Remember on the the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, when he met with his disciples. And it says that he opened up the Old Testament. And he started at the law and the prophets and the holy writings. And he revealed himself. 
through the Old Testament. See, he's the theme of all that. It all leads to Christ. Whether you start out in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of women, or whether you come to the end of, of the Old Testament in Malachi and talk about the great judge and the judgment to come. Christ is always the subject. He's the one who's He's the one who's pictured in all the ceremonies. He's the one who's pictured in all the sacrifices. He's the great king who's been promised. It's all leading up to him. He's the great prophet to come. I mean, all these, all these things indicate that there's going to be a savior born. And all that is preparation. That's why it's, it's important to understand that when Zacharias, the father of John, husband of Elizabeth, when he realized that the Messiah was going to be born, he understood that from an Old Testament perspective. So the whole Old Testament just exploded in his mind, with significance to him, he thought, wow, all the pieces just came together. And so we, we want to take some time to kind of lay down that groundwork as we look at Christ. The sheep who would be led to slaughter for us, the Bible says. He's everywhere in the Old Testament. And that's all preparation for the new. But you know what? To be honest, it's incomplete. It leaves some things out. It's bits and pieces here and there. Nobody got all of it in one, one book back then. They just got bits and pieces here and there. So this progressive revelation continued. Each writer got a little bit of it. And then another writer got a little bit of it, and then they began to put it together, and it stretched out over 1,500 years. A lot of times they didn't even know each other. And Peter says they looked at what they wrote, and they wondered exactly who they were writing about and what time this was going to happen. In other words, they couldn't sort it all out. It didn't make complete sense to them. I mean, aren't you glad today that we have the completed Word of God that you have a personal copy of God's Word, complete canon, you can take it with authority and believe that this is it. This is what God has been working on all these years. And we can hold it right in our hand and we can read it in our own language. What an amazing blessing that is. A lot of the people in the Bible, old and new, didn't have that privilege. They just had bits and pieces of it. And so the preparation for Christ in verse 1 is really the Old Testament. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Well, that leads us to a second point, the presentation of Christ, and that comes in verse 2. It's just weird to me. There's no introduction to this book. He just starts right in. And he covers the presentation of Christ. He says in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. In other words, the revelation is completed. That's what that means. 
God said all he's going to say. When he sent his son, nothing more needed to be said. It's complete in him. You say, well, why doesn't the New Testament end at the Gospels? Because through the Gospels, it gives us the story of Jesus Christ. It gives us the historical story. And there's, there's no wonder, there's, there's four Gospels because his life was so incredibly large, the life of Christ. It needed to be looked at from four different perspectives. But the story doesn't end there. It ends with Jesus going back into heaven at the end of the Gospels and announcing that he's going to come back and he's going to set up a kingdom in the future, that he'll be returning. And that's really the end of God's revelation of himself. It's complete in Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's, that's important for us to understand today because we shouldn't be looking for new revelation. Sometimes you talk to certain individuals, and yeah, you know, I was shaving in the mirror this morning, and, and, and Jesus gave me a, a word from the Lord, you know. It's like, well, I don't know who that was, but I can guarantee it wasn't Jesus, and it wasn't a word from the Lord. Because God's word is complete. It's not being written today. There's not, there's not bits and pieces of God's word out there floating uh, around. That's not how it works. But it's, it's important to understand that along with the preparation, he presents Christ as the speaker for God. He says, as in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son. In, in other words, in Christ, God did not display some of the truth. See, Christ isn't some of God's truth. He is all of God's truth. He is complete. He revealed God fully by being fully God. That's what Scripture says. That's why in Colossians chapter 2, it says, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus Christ, in that little baby, was, was complete God. Amazing. And so today, no longer is God speaking in diverse manners. No longer is God speaking in little fragments here and there. He has spoken to us through his Son. And that's the last word. It's his full and his final revelation. Because when Jesus came, there's nothing more that God needed to say. That little phrase there, in these last days, or these, these last days, it depends what translation you have. It's a familiar phrase to the Jewish mindset. They would identify it as a messianic age, like the latter days. Always refers to a messianic age. So in the time of Messiah, God spoke. He spoke in his son, who was God incarnate. Look at John chapter 1. Just real quick before we prepare for our communion time. John chapter 1, it says there, Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Well, who is this word? It goes on, it tells us. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him, so we know we're talking about an individual, was life. And life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Isn't that a mind-boggling statement? The, 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 the world doesn't know its creator. The person who made this world, the world does not know. Matter of fact, it says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? But of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, now we know who he's talking about. And we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. And of his fullness, verse 16, we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but what happened? But grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is In the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. See, Jesus Christ came as a picture for us. He became man so that we could could identify with him. In a way that we couldn't before. And he came to this earth to die on a cross to give his life a ransom for all those who would put their faith and trust in him. So many times throughout Scripture, we see the Messiah spoken of. But when Christ came, it completed that picture. In Him, the revelation of God is absolutely complete. There's no separate way. There's no, you know, it's not, it's not anything other than God in His full majesty. You can see Him in everything Everything you need can be in Christ. Christ is totally sufficient to meet all of your needs. We don't need to look anywhere else. And yet, we live in an age and a day when most in the church, that's the last place they look. I mean, a lot of people will go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker or whoever before they'll come to God, before they'll come to Christ. They'll try to work it out on their own. But you know what? You can see the Creator as you look around. You can see the justice of God in the New Testament when He cleanses the temple. You can see in in Christ 
all there is to see of God, because he is God. He is the one who came to give his life a ransom. He's presented as the Savior. And it says there that he had, has appointed heir of all things. We'll look at that next week as we get into that. But I, I want to share this morning that as we come before our communion time, don't think that this is just a time where, okay, you take the piece of cracker and you drink the juice and you know, you've done it all your life. Uh, this should mean something to you. It should have some kind of substance, some kind of uh, understanding. Your faith should understand what you're doing. When, when you take that cracker and you break it off and you, you, you partake with everybody else, you're doing that because Christ told you to do that. You're doing that because you're a Christ follower. You're, you're being willing to obey what he told us to do in the New Testament. He said that we should remember his death till he comes. And that doesn't just mean once a month. I mean, we practice communion once a month on the first Sunday of the month, but we could do it every Sunday if we wanted to. But we've seen the preparation of Christ laid out in the Old Testament, and he presents himself as a Savior in the New Testament over and over, and we'll go in a little bit more to that next week. But this morning, as we come before the communion table, the Word of God is, is very clear on how we should look at this, how we should practice this. And it's not something that we should just take lightly. Um, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, it says, Now in giving these instructions, Paul writes, I do not praise you, since you come together not for better, but for worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must be also be fractions, factions among you, that those who are approved may, not, may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk? Don't you have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? I don't praise you for this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the, bo- the, the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, 
lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I'll set in order when I come.